I have really enjoyed being with you. Uh, my family has enjoyed being with you. My kids have 40-some new friends now. And they couldn't be happier. Thanks for being sweet with them. Thanks for welcoming us and being such uh, attentive, attentive listeners um, over these series of, uh, of sermons. So um, for our last passage today, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 31, and I'll go through verse 46. This is God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these friends. I'm grateful for what you have been doing in their lives, for what you continue to do and what you will do in their lives. I pray that you would let this weekend be a great encouragement in their journey of faith. And I pray that they would grow into the the kind of people that you've designed for them to be, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them courage, that you would pour out your grace again and again in their lives, and that they would be sweet examples of what it looks like when the gospel gets a hold of a person. And I ask that you would um, bless and keep them. Make your face shine on them and be gracious to them. 
Lift up your countenance on them and give them peace. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I don't know if you all remember, but there was this television show that was called The Undercover Boss. How many of you remember that television show? Okay. Well, if you're not familiar, here's how the show went. The theme of the show was that corporate executives would go undercover in in their work as an ordinary employee within their own companies. The CEO or or the high-level executive would go undercover in their own company. And each episode begins with an overview of the, the stature of the CEO, telling you how they built their company, telling you uh, of all uh, of their accolades and accomplishments. And you, and you get a sense of just how big a deal this corporate executive is. And then the next part of the show, it, it shows you the transformation that the CEO goes under in order to conceal their identity. They might put on a wig, they might put on a fake mustache or a beard, they might wear some glasses, but, but their true identity is concealed in that next part of the show. And then they spend time undercover working in various areas of their company's operations. Now, for the employees, This is just another ordinary day. It's just another typical day at the job. They treat people the way they usually treat people, for better or worse. They do their job the way they typically do their job, for better or worse. They act the way they normally act. They they don't realize it, though, that they're speaking directly with their boss. They don't realize it because he's undercover. The executive goes unrecognized at this stage of the show. Their position and their authority are not recognized. But the executive of the company in these, in these shows, they could be treated well or they could be treated poorly. It's not until the next phase of the show begins to unfold that we see the real drama kick in. Because... At the, at the back part of the show, there's this big unveiling. <clears throat> and what the undercover boss does is he begins to bring in every employee that he had interactions with. And it's like he unveils himself. And then there is a review of how they treated the undercover boss. And you can see it on everyone's face. The moment that it is revealed to them and they realize that that new employee was actually their boss, the immediate thought you see flash across their faces is this, how did I treat the undercover boss? <laughs> how did I do? Was I a jerk? Was, was, I, was, I, was I doing my work right? Was, it, was I on point? Now here's the deal. At this point in the show, there is no do-overs for the employees. There is no winding back the clock. They can't take back the things that they've said. They can't undo the things they have done. The only thing that matters is how they treated the undercover boss. And at that point in the show, the executive deals with the the employees according to the way they dealt with him when he was undercover. And to the employees who were faithful to their jobs, the employees that were, were diligent, 
he, he gives them rewards. Some of them would get massive bonuses. Some of them would get stake in the company. And to the unfaithful employees, they are terminated. Now, our lives in this world are very similar to an episode of The Undercover Boss. Because every day, God shows up in our lives, in this world, but he's concealed. And we don't realize that every day we are dealing with the undercover boss. We act like we normally act. We deal with people like we typically deal with people. We relate to others like we typically relate to others. All the while, we don't realize that we're dealing. You see that fly again? (laughs) We're dealing with the undercover boss. But here's what the scriptures tell us. That the entire drama of the story of God, the entire drama of the scriptures is driving to the day where Jesus will be revealed in all of his glory. The undercover boss will be revealed in all of his authority and power. And the main issue when we have to face him will be this. How did I treat the undercover boss? And so... At that point, there won't be any do-overs. There won't be any reruns. We won't be able to wind back the clock. We're not going to be able to reel in the words that we've said to people. We're not going to be able to undo it at that point. Jesus will bring his kingdom to fulfillment. And the faithful will inherit the kingdom. You see this? This is the devil. It's the devil. <laughs> you don't believe in a devil. Look at this fly, friends. <laughs> On that day, Jesus, as king, will dispense blessing and reward to his faithful. And he will judge the unfaithful. So I want to talk about preparing for that day as the final installment of what happens when the gospel gets a hold of someone's heart. Because you know what? Anyone who has had the gospel get a hold of their heart in this life will be able to show up in confidence on that day before Jesus. Because the life that they have lived, the fruit that will come from that life, will show how the gospel has had a grip on their hearts. And this is why it's important. So, we're going to hit this passage through two points this morning, where we, where we consider this. Seeing judgment rightly, and seeing people rightly. Seeing judgment rightly, and seeing people rightly. When the gospel gets a hold of your heart, when you really come to know God, when you know his love, when you know his grace, his goodness, you will see judgment rightly and you will see people rightly. So let's look at our first point, seeing judgment rightly. Now, here's the context of our passage. This is three days before Jesus enters into his sufferings and the cross. And he's preparing his disciples for the things that lie ahead. And before he gives himself over to the injustice of the authorities, his brutal sufferings, his execution, he lays down this powerful teaching. And look at verses 31 through 33. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, We've said it a little bit over the course of our time together, but when people think of Jesus, they tend to think of the the warm and fuzzy Jesus. 
they tend to think of the Jesus who was meek and lowly and mild and, and didn't hurt a fly or anything like that. And there is that side of Jesus. But this passage, Jesus is trying to get the smelling salts under their noses to wake them up to say, that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is that he is the king and he is glorious and he executes justice. And he is coming. He is coming. It may feel a long way off, but he is coming. He had a time of humiliation when he walked this earth and when he lived and walked in our shoes. But there will come a day of exaltation as well, where he will be revealed before the earth. And we have to keep the two in tension because during Jesus' earthly ministry, he kept that concealed. He kept it concealed and only momentarily revealed himself in his glory. But this passage is telling us that there will be a day when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will come and he will fully unveil his glory and authority. And we will see him as he actually is. And what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's referencing Daniel chapter 7. It's a book of the Bible, Daniel chapter 7. And it's a prophecy And Jesus is basically saying, that prophecy was about me. You want to hear what Daniel 7 says? This is what it says. Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, that passage is about me. It doesn't look like it right now, my little disciples. And you're going to see me face excruciating humiliation. You're going to see me crushed to the ground. But can't no grave hold my body down. I'm going to rise up. And I'm going to flex my authority over the grave. I'm going to flex my authority over sin, death, and the devil. And one day, even as you live in the tension between the now and the not yet, one day I'm going to finish the job. This is about me. Now here's the deal. It was not surprising for these disciples to hear that God's judgment was coming. It wasn't a surprise for them. But you cannot imagine how much joy and gratitude it brought to them to know that God was going to judge. It brought them good news because these were first century Jews who had faced the injustice of the surrounding nations for centuries. They had been passed around. They had faced the injustice of the Assyrians. 
They had faced the injustice and captivity under the Babylonians. They faced the captivity under the Persians. And in between the Old and the New Testament, they were passed around by Greek city-states. And now they were under the thumb of Rome. And it was a bomb. It was good news for them to hear that God was going to judge the earth. Nothing made them more happy or hopeful than the idea that judgment was coming. And this sounds strange in our ears, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound strange? Everyone say, yeah, it sounds strange. (laughs) It sounds strange to talk about judgment as good news. And it sounds strange to our our modern ears because the last thing that modern people want to hear about is judgment. What do we hear from people? Oh, he's one of those fire and brimstone. You know, Christians, they always judging. You know, like, like, like we, there is a, an aversion to any discussion of judgment. But we need a new perspective on judgment, friends. That's, that's stinking thinking. That's not clear-headedness. It sounds very, um, it sounds very virtuous, but actually it's vacuous. It's empty. And I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you why. We need to consider why there's a difference between the way that ancient people thought about judgment and the way that modern people think about judgment. Why is there a difference? Here it is. You want to understand judgment? You want to understand how to have an answer for people who are like, you just believe in a God of judgment, don't you? Well, I can't believe in a God who judges. You know what people are saying? I can't believe in a God who's different from me. (laughs) I can't believe in a God who's bigger, whose thoughts are higher than my thoughts, whose ways are better than my ways. I want a God who's just like me. But the first reason for the difference between the ancients and the moderns when it comes to judgment is this. Ancient people and Christians throughout history and around the globe have always understood this primary idea that justice and judgment are two sides of the same coin. How many of you care about justice? You cannot care about justice without implicitly caring about judgment. If there is no judgment, there can be no justice. No judgment, no justice. If you're going to establish the right and abolish the wrong, if you're going to deal with evil, if you're going to deal with evildoers, then you must judge. And these disciples were encouraged by the certainty of cosmic judgment because that meant there would be cosmic justice. God will set the world right. That's the first reason. Second, most of us don't appreciate the historic and global difficulty of enduring a corrupt justice system. C.S. Lewis put it this way. In most places and times, this is a quote, in most places and times, it has been very difficult for the, quote, small man to get his case heard. The judge has to be bribed. If you can't afford to oil his palm, your case will never reach court. Our judges do not receive bribes. We need not therefore be surprised if the Psalms and the prophets and all of Scripture are full of the longing for judgment 
and regard the announcement that judgment is coming as good news. <coughs> Hundreds and thousands of people who have been stripped of all they possess and who have the right entirely on their side will at last be heard. They know their case is unanswerable if only it could be heard. When God comes to judge, at last it will. You see what he's saying? Our American justice system has its faults and corruptions in it. But when you compare it to other justice systems historically and globally, you realize that around the world, it has been hard for people to get justice without bribery. And one of the reasons why we don't appreciate it is because there's some degree of functionality to our justice system. So we don't sense the urgency. Third, the third reason for the difference is related to the previous two. Listen, if you have a hard time with judgment, it's likely because you are culturally blinded by your privileged position. You see, that's a that's a that's called jujitsu. <laughs> Using the force of the cultural argument against itself. Everyone talks about loving justice and everyone talks about wanting things to be made right. But here's the deal. Anyone who says that they can't buy into a God who judges is <laughs> is likely doing so from a position of great privilege. Because here's the deal. If you don't have this deep desire and need for God to make things right, then you're in a, a position of privilege. We don't experience the overwhelming necessity of judgment. But I want you to think about something. Y'all with me? Y'all with me? I want you to think about this idea. The minute... That you start Whitfield children, I need you to chill out. <laughs> or judgment's coming. No, sorry, I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing. He's losing a tooth. Awesome. <laughs> um, all right, let's come back. Let's come back. I'm sorry for my children. Um, here's the deal. Think about this. If you ever feel like, well, you know what? I just, I'm a little too sophisticated to believe in that antiquated idea that God judges, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about jumping in a time machine and going back and telling thousands of lynching victims in the Jim Crow South that God doesn't judge. I want you to think about telling the victims of the Jewish Holocaust and young women being trafficked around the world that God doesn't judge. That there should be no judgment. I want you to find any people group that has suffered under the weight of terrible violence, abuse of power, and injustice, and tell them that you don't like the idea of injustice, of, of judgment. And I want you to imagine what they would say to you. You see this, that this idea that judgment is bad is a modern Western export. And if it doesn't sync with the global reality and the way that people around the world think and the way that people through history have thought, then I want you to think about something. The problem is probably us. That chronological snobbery, the idea that things just naturally trend in a 
in a better direction. It's just an inevitability that things always get better as you move forward in time. That's a fallacy. That's a fallacy. That's not, that's not clear, critical thinking. Not only that, but you know what you're saying? You're basically making a statement that is pretty ethnocentric. You know, those backward Africans and Asians and Latin Americans and pretty much the rest of the world that's not the Western world. You know, they're just not, you know, they're not firing like we are. Think about how, think about how ethnocentric and self-righteous that is. But I want, to, I want you to think about something else, too. We all implicitly recognize that, that the Hitlers of the world, the Pol Pots of the world, the King Leopold II of the world, that judgment should come out there. Yes, those people should be dealt with. Don't we feel that? Okay, but here's the thing. If you're going to be consistent, here's the deal. You've got to know that if God is judging the evil out there, then he's going to judge the evil in here. And the question is, what are you going to do? If you're going to be consistent in your thinking, if anyone deserves to be dealt with, if anyone should be the recipient of judgment because of their injustice, then you've got to know that you're going to be on the list eventually. And the question is, what are you going to do? That's just consistency. That's just intellectual consistency. So taking all of those factors into consideration, you can see why the idea of judgment is good news. It means that God's going to make it right. I want you to think about it like this. Judgment, the, the teaching around judgment is like a dog whistle. Only the marginalized, the oppressed, the disadvantaged, the outcast, and those who empathize with them can hear it. Anytime, anytime you hear someone talking that noise about like, oh, judgment is antiquated and oh my, I can't believe in that kind of thing. You scratch behind that and you're going to find one of these errors. So we should not be ashamed about the fact that God will judge because you know what that means? At the same time, God will do justice. And all the longings and the cries for justice in the culture will only be met by a God who judges. It's the dog whistle. And when it comes to politics, I just want to say this as it comes to justice and judgment. If you're conservative, be careful that you're not conserving what God will judge. And if you're progressive, make sure that you're watching out and not advancing a progress that is leading toward the judgment of Christ. Advancing ideas and ways of being in society that God, Christ, is going to judge. We have to see judgment rightly. But next, we have to see people rightly. So this is our second point, our final point. We have heard this story that Jesus gives, and he tells the story of the great day where the undercover boss will reveal himself, and he will separate the sheep from the goats. And we see this interesting development no one in the story that Jesus tells is surprised about judgment coming. None of them are surprised. They, 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 this is obvious. It's, it's, it makes total sense. But what, and none of, them are, none of them are confused about the assignment that they get. The sheep aren't confused about their assignment, and the goats aren't confused about their assignment. None of them rebuts and says, hey, I shouldn't be here. They all know that they're getting what they ought to get. 
What, what is surprising to them is the grounds upon which they are separated. That's what's surprising in this text. The gathering, the separation, the sheep, the pronouncement. Then you get the question and the answer, and it's repeated by the goats. Now, the sheep are surprised that it's on the ground of how they treated Jesus. And the goats are surprised that it's on the ground of how they treated Jesus. But they just didn't realize that the boss was undercover, concealing himself in the likeness of his disciples, particularly his poor and needy and marginalized disciples. They didn't realize that every time they dealt with another person, they were dealing with, with the undercover boss. That was what was striking to them. Do you see what Jesus is teaching? They are admitted or excluded from the kingdom on the basis of how they treated Jesus as he showed up in his disciples around. You want to know why community is important? Because when you look into the eyes of the people in your community, You're supposed to think that you are seeing Jesus. You are welcoming Jesus. And how you treat them is how you treat Jesus. Now, American Christians have this really, really interesting spirituality. And we tend to think about how well we're doing in our spirituality based upon if we're having our quiet time. Am I I, I spending time reading the Bible? Am I spending time in prayer? And that's an important part of it. But it's, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. It's also has to, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. It also has to do with the way that our spirituality works itself out in our relationships. Because here's the deal. Jesus lives in such close union with his people that how you treat his people is how you treat him. Now, let me make this clear. I want to make this crystal clear. I'm married to Vanessa. We are one. Now, I want you to imagine something. Imagine you made a practice of treating her bad. You talked about her bad all the time. You always pointed out her faults and her failures. You never recognized her value and her virtues. You treated her poorly. You were disrespectful toward her. You called yourself her friend, but you neglected her. I want, to, I want you to ask yourself a question. Do you really think that me and you can be on good terms if you treat my wife like that? Do you think so? Well, you did preach about neighbor love yesterday. I'm going to answer that for you. No. No. You and I are going to have some issues if you treat my wife like that. There's going to be some furniture moving off of here if you mistreat my wife like that. Why? Because I love her. Because we are in such close union that how you treat her is how you treat me. And Jesus is saying it's the same way when it comes to his people. How you treat his people is how you treat him. That's what he said. Do you neglect him? Do you talk bad about him? Do you, do you, you see what I'm saying? And he gets into the specifics of it. It's like in Acts 9. You know the story of Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul the Apostle? When Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and he is killing Christians, he's, he's participating in the, in the murder of Christians. And Jesus comes up and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Is that what he says? No. He says, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? Jesus is saying, how you treat my people is how you treat me. How are you treating Jesus as he shows up? How are you treating the undercover boss? Let me get this on the ground pastorally. The good news is that Jesus will not allow the mistreatment of his people to go unanswered, which is another reason why you can leave judgment to God and you don't have to take it into your own hands. No matter what your experience is at the hands of other people, you don't have to take it into your own hands. Jesus will mete out absolutely perfect justice. But let's get this on the ground. How you treat the Christian people in your life, especially the poor ones, is how you treat Jesus. How you treat your roommate is how you treat Jesus. How you, I want you to think about this. How would your conflicts with people change if you knew you were dealing with Jesus and not just another person? Would you be balling them out the same way? Would you, would you be so biting and sarcastic and cynical in your dealings with them if you knew this is, you're dealing with Jesus here? I don't think so. I mean, anytime Jesus says the least of these, my brothers, he's talking about other Christians. The first order here is how Christians treat other Christians, but it applies to the way that we treat anybody else. How you treat your roommate is how you treat Jesus. How would your words change? How would how would you stop being passive aggressive? How would your affections change? How you treat your community is how you treat Jesus. Do you blow them off? Do you prioritize other things above them? That's how you treat Jesus. It's, it's, it's not meant to like guilt you. It's meant to wake you up. That there's a lot at stake in the way that we treat other people, in the way that we talk to other people, in the way that we welcome other people, in the way that we host other people. How... You treat them as how you treat Jesus. All right, listen to this. How you treat children is how you treat Jesus. Coming for you, Vanessa. Um, Just kidding. This really hits for parents, but I want you to think about this. We live in an age, in a culture, that really sees children as they're in the way. they're, They're inhibitors to my career trajectory. They're a... They're a pain as it comes to my own personal and social advancement. They're in the way. But how you treat children is how you treat Jesus. Jesus, if I find another Cheerio in this couch, it's going to be me and you. Jesus, if you don't put your shoes on so we can get out of this house, that's that's how it works for parents. But think about it for you. I mean, that's where it gets real. Because... As you see these things, you're like, well, damn, I'm messed up, right? Like, that's the immediate thought. You think you're like, wow, I got need for the grace of God in Jesus Christ because of how I deal with people, how I treat Jesus in the form of the people around me, disregarding, paying no attention. I mean, I want you to imagine right now, if Jesus just appeared in this room in all his glory, we would all look like our hands were in the light sockets. We'd be like, ah! our hair would go, Bing! we would be floored. We would begin to unravel. Now, 
Just because you don't see Him in that glory every day doesn't mean that you're not seeing Him and you're not dealing with Him. So what it takes is some sacred imagination to know that every time you're dealing with another human being, particularly those who are Christians and in the family of faith, you are to imagine that you are dealing with Jesus. There were these old school cats. They were, they were Benedictine monks. They, they, their monastery was started by St. Benedict. And they had this way of life that they all agreed to. And they, they, in this rule of life that they had, there was a chapter on the reception of guests. And this is what St. Benedict laid down as the rule for their community. Because back in the day, there, there were no hotels. There was no, there was no Hilton and, and no Motel 6. There was none of that. When people were traveling, they were always looking for a church or a monastery because they were looking for welcome and they knew they'd find it there. And it was because of Christians like Benedict who laid down this kind of rule for his community. He said this. This is the rule of our community on the reception of guests. All guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Proper honor must be shown to all, especially to those who share our faith and to pilgrims. Once a guest has been announced, the leader and the brothers are to meet him with all the courtesy of love. First of all, they are to pray together and thus be united in peace. But prayer must always precede the kiss of peace because of the delusions of the devil. All humility should be shown in addressing a guest on arrival or departure by a bow of the head or a complete prostration of the body. Christ is to be adored because he is indeed welcomed in them. Do you see what Benedict said? When they saw a visitor approaching their monastery, they would either bow down or they would completely lay on their faces as if Jesus himself was approaching. And then they would get up and give the kiss of peace, the greeting. They would extend every courtesy and honor. They would feed them. They would house them. They would clothe them. They would care for them. And then as they departed, they would depart in that honor. That's a Christian heritage, a tradition of how Christians have treated Jesus in the form of other people. I'm always reminded of this this passage by C.S. Lewis. He says this. He says, Remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. See what Lewis is saying? He's saying that if you could imagine the person that bores you most right now, imagine them, get them in your head right now. If you could see them one day 
completely glorified by Jesus, renewed entirely, what you would see, you would be tempted to bow down and worship. And if they are facing the judgment of God, they would be a horror that would be so terrifying to you, you couldn't even conceive of it in your worst nightmare. There are no mere mortals. There are no ordinary people. And Jesus adds the layer on to this this notion that it's not just that person that's valuable and dignified and has a trajectory, but in them you meet me. So I want you to think about it. When the gospel gets a hold of your heart, you don't treat people like mere mortals. You don't treat people like ordinary people. You treat them with supreme dignity as a Christian when the gospel gets hold of you. When you know how deeply valued you are by God, you begin to deeply value other people, even in the context of great disagreement, even in the context of great awkwardness or great difference of personality. You never disregard or devalue another person. Because if anyone had warrant for disregarding another. It was Jesus who had warrant for disregarding us, but He did not. He demonstrated the ultimate value for us. He demonstrated the ultimate care for us. And when you know that Jesus wouldn't pass you by as a nobody, when you know that that love has been so... Jesus loves each and every one of us as if there were only one of us. He's able to focus on us like that. We occupy his heart as if we were the sole inhabitants of the universe. Think on that. That's the kind of attention that God is able and willing to to give to you. That's how concerned he is. The Bible says he knows when a hair falls from your head. How much attention and care must he give to you? He is so dialed in with every care. He he invites you to bring every single solitary request you have to Him. Not just the big ones, not just the scary ones. Every little concern you have. That's how invested He is in you. And He invests in you in that way. So that you will become the kind of person who invests in others in that way. That you're attentive. That you're able to slow down and pause and see the person. And hear them. And in your mind somehow you think, in this encounter, I'm not just dealing with this person and their concerns. I'm dealing with Jesus. Think about how that changes everything. Think about how it changes when people derail you for your faith. Oh, you're a Christian. You're one of those people. Oh, my goodness. Now, listen, this passage is specifically about how you treat the other Christians in your life. But apply the principle. What if you looked at them and you said, how I treat them is how I treat Jesus. I... What good is it going to do me to grow angry at them? It's not going to change them. My ang- the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. What if, what if I respond in kindness? If Jesus could hang from the cross and not say a word, he was silent before his accusers. Can't we be? He empowers us by that cross to be silent before our accusers. If they want to know a reason for the hope that we have, we offer it. But we don't need them to agree with us in order for us to be okay. In order for us to do what it is that Christians do. Which is love fiercely. And serve selflessly. And give sacrificially. And love the family of faith. We are a collection of weirdos and misfits. 
We're not a country club. We're like a hospital. And every one of us needs the care of the great physician. That's why we gather together. That's why we stick together. That's why we bind our lives together. You are not fit to live life by yourself. You can't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. It doesn't matter how competent you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how many degrees you are, how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter how many letters you have behind your name. You can't do it by yourself. That's why God brought you into a family. And so much of what God calls us to do can only be done in the context of family. Love one another. Okay, how are you going to do that by yourself? <laughs> Forgive one another. All the one another's of Scripture. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you going to do that by yourself? You will never get beyond your own blind spots. There's this illustration that is always used in youth groups with kids. <laughs> but if you take a twig... And you give it to a kid and you say, break this. They're like, ah, right? They break it. But then you start to pile it up and you pile up the sticks. A bunch of little twigs. John and I aren't going to be able to break it. You're a twig by yourself. So why don't you become a part of the bunch in the local expression that is the church? And in this local opportunity that's called RUF, belong. Belong so that you can be strong. I didn't mean to make it rhyme, but I just got it like that. You know what I'm saying? I got bars. Hashtag bars. Um, <laughs> hey, I love you guys. It has been a real joy to be with you. I think, just based on my experience, I get to be around a lot of groups. I speak around at a lot of places. I think that what you have here is something worth sharing. It's really good. Y'all are a joy to be around. God is at work in you and through you. And, and, you know, there was this old gospel song, and it's very simple, and you've probably heard of it before, but it's this idea, like, once the gospel gets hold of you, it goes, this little light of mine, y'all know that song? I'm gonna let it shine, oh, this little light of mine. It's simple, right? But let your light shine so that people can see your, your life and your good works and glorify God and continue to lean into this gospel-shaped life. Uh, Receive this blessing. It's not, a, it's not a prayer. It's a blessing. So lift your heads and receive it. May the love of God our Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit rest, rule, and abide with you as you go from this place. May God use you to be a blessing to UVM and beyond. Go in his peace. Thanks, y'all.